welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, very thankful, Lord. We're very thankful to gather as your people in this place. We're so thankful that you are faithful. You're good and faithful to always speak to us as we gather and Open your word, Lord. You've been so faithful to always be here and, and speak to us, your kids. And so we, we ask that you would do that again. We pray, Lord, that you would grant conviction of sin to your people, uh, encouragement where that's needed. Lord, we pray that you would save among us. Lord, we do believe that you are among us, that your spirit is powerfully moving in your people. That's why we gather. We don't gather to hear the thoughts of a man or the words of a man. We gather to hear your word driven home by your spirit. And so we pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Jeremiah 29 and 2,600 years ago. After God warned his people over and over again to repent, he allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy Jerusalem and haul off the Jews into captivity in Babylon. So that's what that passage was about. That's a 2,600-year-old event. And the Babylonians had an interesting strategy. When they when they beat up the Jews and brought them in, what they did is they focused on the leaders and the professional classes, and they brought them into their city and tried to integrate them in their society. It was an interesting move that they did. And, and the reason they did this is for cultural assimilation. So what they wanted, they wanted all the leaders of the Jews and all the professionals and stuff like that to feel a lot more Babylonian. Because they figured from then on they can control the nation that way. If, the, if these Jewish people kind of took on the values and things of the Babylonians, that they would be easier to rule. And you can see that in verse 1. It's written to the, the elders, the priests, the prophets, and then a little bit later down to the craftsmen and the metal workers and, and these people that were in power. And so Daniel, actually, Daniel and his friends are a good example of this. They took leaders or future leaders of the country and they brought them into Babylon and they tried to get them to be more Babylonian. And God told them that they were going to be in exile for 70 years. Then they'd be brought back to the promised land. And this letter in Jeremiah 29 is a letter through uh, the prophet Jeremiah from God, giving them instructions on how they should live as exiles in Babylon. And you might think, okay, wait, what does this have to do with any of us? Okay, what does this have to do with any of us? Well, the New Testament talks a lot about us as Christians being exiles in this world lot about it, actually, once you really start digging. In fact, the New Testament gives us reason to see our lives here in this culture through the lens of the Babylonian exile. Just like God's people in the Old Testament were in exile in Babylon, we now are exiles in this world. I'll give you a few examples. Peter, when he wrote to the Christians in the first century, First uh, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he called them elect exiles of the dispersion. So he's, he's giving them this exile lens to look at their life through. In 1 Peter 2.11, he calls them sojourners and exiles. At the end of his letter, when he's closing off, he actually talks about Rome as if it's the new Babylon. He says, speaking of the church in Rome, he says this, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, greets you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church in Rome. And he says, she who's in Babylon. There's a very common thing to think of this world as kind of a spiritual Babylon. John, in the book of Revelation, does the same thing. He talks about the culture of that time, the the Roman Empire is being kind of like a Babylon. Um, he describes there's two cities. There's, there's the city of God, which is the New Jerusalem, which is in heaven. That's the city that we're really citizens of. And then there's this earthly Babylon that's against God. That's where we actually live. We live in this earthly Babylon, even though we're citizens of the New Jerusalem. 
And really all the application in this text you can find in the rest of the letters of the New Testament. There's, there's really a sense that we are exiles. Christians have always been a people in exile. The world is not our true home. We're, we're resident aliens here. We aren't living in the promised land yet, right? We're living in Babylon. And there have been times in church history when it was a lot easier to forget that. There were times in church history when God's people were in nations that largely agreed with their values, and it was harder to see that we were not living in the promised land, but living in Babylon. But I think you guys would agree with me that it's become a lot more clear lately. Okay, It's been a lot more clear lately, and we can relate a lot better to this idea of being exiles in Babylon. Maybe you guys have felt this. You hear people talking, maybe you've talked this way, that you're increasingly feeling like this isn't your country anymore, that something has happened, some shift has happened in our culture. It's a massive shift in the last couple decades. Anybody feel like they woke up in Babylon? They're kind of wondering what happened. (laughs) You know, like, I didn't know I was in Babylon until now. And now it's like these things come alive, these scriptural ideas come alive. You know, you might be having a hard time understanding how your neighbors think, you know, whereas before you had a lot of similarities, you're having less similarities. You might feel increasingly alien here. This might seem, you might be less and less at ease and and less at home here. And I know, guys, that that can be scary and it can be frustrating. And one of those responses that's natural is to lament and complain, right? Which I'm not going to say is wrong. There's actually a very biblically rich (laughs) tradition of lament and complain, especially in the Psalms. Um, When these guys were brought into exile, they lamented. In Psalm 137, they said, By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And so lament's appropriate. Lament's appropriate. When you see things happening in your culture that are more and more obviously against the ways of God, lament's appropriate. But I'd like to share with you tonight, guys, that lament, while appropriate, is not a very good long-term strategy. Okay? It's not a long-term strategy. It's a very natural and okay reaction, but then there has to be some sort of strategy. We have to, at some point, learn how to live fruitfully in a context that's more and more pagan. And that's something that's great that we have here in, in Jeremiah 29, is we have God's strategy for exiles. And that, so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Because I believe, guys, that it's a scripture and his spirit gives us everything we need to raise thriving families anywhere we're at. And that we can be a blessing in any culture. And that, you know, God has put us in a place in time and in history for us to actually really make a difference and be a blessing in our culture. And so while there's a place for lament and complaint, there's also a place for strategy and moving forward. And how do we live here? So I'm going to give you five strategies that I see in this text. Let me read verses four through nine. Here's the strategy. See if you can hear them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Five strategies I want to give you that I see in the te- this text. The first one is, remember your sentness, okay? And I get that, it's a made-up word maybe. But remember your sentness, that you're sent. Verse 4 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Remember your sentness. Remember you've been sent. Remember you've been sent by God into exile. Because you, there's an interesting double thing here about who sent them. In verse 1, it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent them. Nebuchadnezzar sent his army, got him, and dragged him into Babylon. It says that in verse 1. So you think, who sent him? Well, maybe Nebuchadnezzar. But then you read in verses 4 and 7 that the Lord says, I'm the one who sent you. God has you in this particular moment in history for a purpose. For a purpose. I think that, you know, especially the last year or something like that, it's very easy for people to start to think that somehow this is a, you know, a, a ride that's gone out of control, you know, or something like that. And, you know, somehow there's other forces that, that are somehow put us in this place. But God, guys, we believe God is ultimately sovereign over all things and he's put us here for a purpose. You too have been sent by God into this place. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said this. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And so every believer has actually been sent by God to wherever they are. And you might say, you know, like Alan, you know, he says, I grew up here. I always lived here. I never planned on coming back here. I'm back here. I've always been in Menifee. A person like that or a person like you might think, I don't feel very sent. I was always here. You know, it's not like I got on a plane and went to, you know, Uganda or I went to some other place. I'd really have a sense of being sent by God. But you have been sent by God. God has you here. He determines the places we live and the boundary of our habitation, as it says in Acts. And so while we might find all kinds of alarming and frustrating things in this culture, ultimately God has sent you here for his glory. And that plan has not changed. And that plan won't be thwarted. So remember your sentness. Remember your sent here. Secondly, really live here. Look at verse 5. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Okay, these are exiles, right? What's he saying to them? You're going to be here a while. Settle in, right? Settle in. You know, really live here. If God, if God has for you to be here, really be here. There's a way to be here without being here. But he's saying, really dig in. And there's an interesting tension, isn't there? Because what I told you is that the Babylonians really wanted to bring all these people in to assimilate them, to make them very Babylonian. And so while we're not to be assimilated, we're not to take on the values of our culture, we're not to kind of become like our culture in our hearts, we are, it says, to become really a part of the culture, to be real parts of our city and our neighborhoods. So I just want to challenge you guys, you know, really be a part of your school, really be a part of your work, really be a part of your community, your neighborhood, like get involved. Because there were false prophets in this text. It says there were false prophets. They were telling these people, these exiles that just came to Babylon, that these prophets are saying, it's not going to be that long. I know you heard 70 years. Probably going to be more like 70 weeks. We'll be fine, you know? And everybody wants to hear that, right? They're like, I like that prophet, you know? Like, that sounds good. And so there were some of them that were kind of hanging out outside of town, and they weren't really getting plugged in because they thought that God was going to take them out right away. But God told them in this text very specifically, you're going to be here 70 years. You really should settle in. You really should get connected and be a part of it. So while we can't assimilate in our values and in the way we think and the way we live, we should be deeply connected to our community. We're not to isolate ourselves. Jesus told us, right, to be in the world but not of the world. It's the same thing. Peter, in First Peter, that term for exile is resident alien. Okay, You're a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem that's to come, and here you're a resident alien. It's like you're a real resident. You're really a part of this place, and your citizenship is from somewhere else. Peter uses that term. Paul uses the term ambassador, right? Or you could think of you know, yourself, your family, our church, this community as being like an embassy. That we're an embassy of, of the kingdom of God. 
You know, that someday the kingdom of God is going to come here and make all things new and take the place over. We're an embassy. We're a gathering of citizens of another place. And so that means you're going to have roots in the community and you're going to have roots in the city in heaven. So if this is where God has called you to be, really be here. Really live here. Really get connected. Really be a part of this community. Third strategy. You'll like this one. If possible, have kids. Lots of them. Okay? That's right here. Verse 6. Yeah, perfect for Mother's Day. We win, you know. Uh, Verse (laughs) 6. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply, do not decrease. So the point here is, if possible, have kids, lots of them. Turns out, out of all the instructions that are given here for exiles, this one actually takes up the most real estate in the list. Do you guys realize that having children is a major strategy in spreading the glory of God? It's actually probably one of the main strategies, right? There's evangelism in having children. This is a main strategy. All the way back to the beginning, right? Genesis 1, a lot of times we look at Genesis 1 and we're kind of confused by it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, okay? That's a major strategy God has for filling the world with his glory. Why? Because human beings are image bearers of God. And as they become redeemed and they follow Christ, they reflect him throughout the world. So God's like totally for this. And I just say to I know if you're like me, the first thing you think is like, what about overpopulation? You know, like that? Don't you think that? Like, you know, I would, but I want to be responsible. I don't want to take up too much space, right? Maybe you guys have heard just recently in the news that the, the birth rate in, a, in the U.S. dropped again. So average woman has 1.6 kids, okay? So on average, 1.6 kids. In the 50s, it was three. So that's a pretty significant drop. See in other countries like Japan and stuff where it's like almost non-existent. So this is something as nations get more prosperous, they, they tend to do this. The replacement rate is 2.1. So if you're going to replace yourself, on average, people would have to have 2.1 kids. So I don't think we need to worry about overpopulation. But there's a better reason not to worry about overpopulation, which is that God is not worried about overpopulation. You know, he just throws that out in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He doesn't go like, hey, there's going to come a point where you need to slow down. He's like, no, fill the earth. God wants as many children as possible, especially the children of believers. And guys, it is more, way more often than not that the children of believers carry on the faith to the next generation. Way more often than not. I mean, sometimes we have sad situations where children of believers don't become believers. But for the most part, what's the most normal thing, most typical thing, is that the children of believers carry on faith in Christ to the next generation. And so don't worry about overpopulation. There's people not doing it. That leaves us space for influence. Okay? Have more children. And it's actually a way of improving the world. Improving our culture. I mean, I know your kids. You know, you guys have great kids. These are the kinds of people we want to make lots of them, okay? And so this is one strategy in being exiles in this world is, if possible, get married and have kids and have lots of them. And whether that's through birthing them yourself or adopting them or both. Now, this isn't everyone's calling, okay? And I know we always have to say, you know, this isn't everyone's calling. Some people are called to be single. Some people aren't, you know, aren't able to have kids, all those kinds of things. But this is a major strategy God has for spreading his glory in the world. And this is the most common calling that people have. And you guys clearly believe in it, which is a blessing. It's totally awesome. That is actually an amazing sign of grace in your lives that you're all in on that, some more than others. So 
second one with kids. So under this kind of heading of, if possible, have children, lots of them. So have them, value them, value children. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's possible to raise kids and not value them. As you guys know, and we've all experienced, there's times when we are doing something super important, we don't realize how important it is. It's funny, there's a lot of hand-wringing about this birth rate drop and like, maybe they need tax credits or something like that. Maybe they need incentives to have more children. Like, I was just listening to a couple of podcasts about this. They're coming up with like, how can we encourage them more? They could value them, right? The scriptures show us how valuable children are. And that's why we want to have them because of value, not because we're going to get like additional tax credits or something. Like, it doesn't work that way. You have to really want them. And then when you have them, you got to want them, you know? And so it's possible, guys, for us to raise kids and not value what you're doing. You guys who are parents, you're making and shaping new human beings. You're like, ah, I just don't think it's that big a deal. I don't really feel important. I don't feel like I'm doing anything significant. Like you're kind of greedy if you're saying that. I mean, you're, you're making and shaping new human beings. What's better than that? Right? I mean, I'm a veterinarian. I'm not doing more important things out there than making new human beings and shaping them for the glory of God. You get to do that. It's really weird that you can even decide to do that. Like a lot of you guys decided to do this. Some of you didn't, but some of you decided. You actually went like, maybe I should make more beings that will live forever. Like that's super crazy. I mean, the the responsibility of this is insane, you know? And we thought, oh yeah, we had them because we want to have them. They're cute. They're great to have around and stuff. Like this is bigger than that. You're making new human beings and shaping them for the glory of God. I mean, what an opportunity. This is unbelievable. G.K. Chesterton said this, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. This is the most extraordinary thing in the world. Okay, so we need Valium. We also need to disciple them. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and should declare your mighty acts. And so not only we have them, we Valium, we disciple them, right? And, and one thing that text tells us is that we pass down what we praise. They watch us for what we praise, and that's what we pass down. We pass down what we praise. So what do they see in us? Do they see us that we value God's word, and we value God's church, and we value God's mission, right? They will watch you for what you praise. You know, if you're super into dirt bikes, they're going to get into dirt bikes. That's how it happened to me, you know? Um, if you're super into something else, sports or whatever, they're going to get excited about it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you pass down what you praise, right? And so we have a role in discipling our kids. And that's probably something we need to spend at least one message on a little bit later is discipling our kids. Because I don't know about you guys, but like post-pandemic, I could use a little tune-up in this area. How about you? Like, I think things got a little loose. Things got a little, you know, have gained some significant weight and stuff like that. Well, this is one area where we got kind of loose and jiggly, right, is in our discipleship. You know, we need to probably tune that up. So maybe we'll do that in a few weeks. But remember, guys, that you live in Babylon, and Babylon's goal is to assimilate you and your children. You're going to need to disciple them. It's not going to just happen automatically. If you're not discipling them, your culture will be. So we disciple our kids, and we're discipling. By discipleship, I mean that we're, we're helping them to learn to do all the things Christ commanded by the power of the Holy Spirit right? That's what, we're, that's what we're training them to do. We're training them to love and desire God and his kingdom. And that is going to have a significant effect in the world. If you do that, you're doing great things for the world. So we have them, value them. It's like points within points. Sorry about that. Disciple them and then send them. Take a look at Psalm 127. This is really cool. Kids are arrows. 
Psalm 127 verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Right? That kids are meant as arrows to be sent out into the world. We send them. At some point, we're sending them. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the... I'm going to get emotional when I read this. So, which I... But I did earlier. Maybe if I say it, I won't. But it reminded me of Jim Elliott. So Jim Elliott was a missionary, died in the 50s in Ecuador. He was the guy that was famous for saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Don't you love that? He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he went to Ecuador as a missionary, ended up dying there. He wrote a letter to his parents before he left. And I want to just read to you. They were very worried, obviously, very worried about sending their son like that. And this is what he wrote to his parents. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of me going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. Grieve not then if your son seems to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist describes children. He says they are a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy to have his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to be shot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrow fly. All of them, straight at the enemy's host. Isn't that cool? The strong arm of prayer, you send your kids off. You know, to strike their target. Isn't that amazing? Such a blessing. So if possible, have kids, lots of them, value them, disciple them, and send them. So that's strategy three with four points underneath <laughs> Fourth strategy, this is like a nine-point sermon. Serve and pray. Look at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This would have been really shocking, guys, for Jews to hear God saying about Babylon, that they're supposed to seek its welfare. And God's not saying to just seek the welfare of the nice Babylonians they might have met at soccer practice, Right? The Babylonians like destroyed their city and killed family members and friends and dragged them into exile. You got to think these guys would have to deal with a bit of their resentments, right? Before they're going to be able to seek the good of the city and love and pray for them, right? And guys, I think that relates to us too. We too, guys, won't do too much good if we're just mad at the culture all the time, right? And so we're going to have to deal with our resentments probably before we're actually able to pray, and or maybe prayer would actually help quite a bit with that, it would, and love our culture. The word here for welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace. It means well-being. So what we're to do in this culture that is opposed to God is for us to pray and serve it such that there's more and more well-being in it, that we would really love the place we've been planted and that we would serve it and pray for it. And guys, they would have been very, very shocked to be told to pray for the peace of Babylon. They were actually told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. <laughs> That's what it says in Psalm 122. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the place that the Babylonians destroyed. And now they're supposed to pray for the peace of Babylon. You know, I think that's one thing we need to check is we're thinking about our mission in this community, in this state, in this nation, in this culture, is we need to think, how much are my resentments keeping me from really loving and praying for this place, right? How much am I just too mad to really be any good? 
Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's our posture, guys, for Babylon. Is that we're here to live as servants. We're here to live as ministers. We're here to be salt and light, right? We're here so that there would be more truth and more love and more peace because we're here. We're here to be in such a way that in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our schools, they'd be sad to see us go because we brought something great to this place. We brought the presence of Christ. And how cool, guys, how cool is it that your neighborhood and your school and your workplace is a place that's actually now blanketed in prayer by you and it wouldn't have been if you weren't there. What a blessing God has given these places to have Christians there that actually are praying over the place. They they might not be anybody else praying over them, but you are because you've been brought to that place. And so that's what we're here to do as we serve our neighbors, as we pray for them, and as we seek opportunities to tell the truth, right? That means sharing the gospel. That means sharing truths in every area because our culture has all kinds of lies that we would be speaking the truth in that place. If you're doing that, guys, you are our church's ministry to Babylon. So you might ask like, hey, do we have ministry to uh, stay-at-home moms? You'd be like, yeah, you. Oh, okay. Do we have a ministry to cops? Yeah, that's you. You know, if you're a cop, right? Do we have a ministry to teachers? Oh, that's a good idea. That's you. <laughs> you know, you get the idea? We've been spread out, guys. We have people everywhere. I could list all the professions that are in this room, but you guys, as you get scattered during the week, you are the ministry of the church to those places. You know, a lot of times we think that it's professional ministers that do the work. Like the most significant things done by professional pastors, by professional ministers. But you guys know that's not God's track record. Do you guys realize that? Think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not professional ministers, right? I don't even know what their job was. Rich guys with sheep or something. Okay, I'm not really sure what their job title was. Let's get to people that had clearer job titles. Joseph, right? Civil servant. We got civil servants here. Deborah, also civil servant. Gideon, farmer. Daniel, also civil servant. Also Nehemiah was as well. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, which were super important in the New Testament. They were tradespeople, tent makers, right? Or Lydia, she was a merchant. Isn't that amazing? These are the team, right? The team are ordinary people in their ordinary jobs doing that work. Daniel's a really good example, right? If we look at Daniel, Daniel served in Babylon. If you haven't ever read his story, you can read it in the book of Daniel. But he served in Babylon. He prayed. He shared the truth with power, right? He shared the truth with people that were around him. He didn't just quietly do this. He was very actually outspoken in his place. And some people could look at that, and they might even have been there in Babylon thinking like, that's weak. Like, we've just been subjugated. We just had our nation destroyed. You should grab a sword and rise up. It's time to fight. What are you doing here? Praying and serving and speaking the truth to people. Like, it might look like it's doing nothing. To some people, it might look like surrender. You know, some people might think your life looks like surrender. What kind of good can just serving and praying and sharing truth with the people around you do? Do you guys realize that like Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who destroyed Jerusalem and dragged him in, that guy got saved through Daniel's ministry. The king of Babylon. Isn't that crazy? That was part of the reason the people were there. They were there because of their disobedience. But God had a thousand other purposes for them being in exile. And one of them was that God set his love upon Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, and wanted him to be his son. So that's why they were there. And God has a a thousand purposes for you to be in an exile too. Fifth one, don't look for an escape from exile. Verse 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. 
I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed by Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So apparently there's these prophets and they're saying like the stay is going to be much briefer. I know you heard 70 years. We're talking 70 weeks, maybe 70 days. Let's just hang on, isolate ourselves and just wait for the ship out. Okay, that was kind of their advice. And um, and so this isolate and wait strategy, there were people doing that and they were off on the on the K-Bar Canal area, the K-Bar River. They were outside the city and they were living out there and they had this kind of isolate and wait strategy. And what that did is that left God's people thinking all the time about how to get out of exile instead of thinking about how to serve the place they were at. They were all self-focused. They were like, "Okay, we heard we're leaving and all they can think about is getting out of here. Right. And what God's saying is, while that's entirely natural, that's not his purpose for them here. And just think about yourself, you know. I mean, sometimes this happens with older people, you know, they're just thinking about getting out of here. <laughs> like, you have a purpose here. God still has you here. You have something to do, right? Or a lot of us can be so frustrated with what's going around us that we're not like thinking like, why does God have me here? What is the thing in which he has me to do? And that's what these prophets were playing on. It was kind of an isolate and wait strategy. And they were just thinking about how to get out. And, and, and what he's saying here is don't, don't be the whole time looking for a way of escape from exile. God has a purpose for you. So how do we stay on mission? Let me do this real quick. How do we stay on mission? How do we focus on being a blessing to our city and our place that we're in? And it's really by trusting in the promises of God. And there's three promises. And don't worry, this isn't a whole nother sermon. There's three promises I see in verses 11 through 14. And they're a plan, a presence, and, and a promise line. Look at the promise of a plan. Look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Guys, we're here in this culture for God's glory, right? For his purposes. 70 years, plus or minus, right? Very similar, right? We need to trust that he knows what he's doing. He has us here for a reason. So think about the place you're at and think about why God might have you here and, and pray that you would trust he has a plan. There's a purpose for you here. This isn't needless suffering. Second one, God's promise of presence. Look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The promise here is his presence, that we're not alone in exile. You know, it feels alone. It feels like, you know, where is God when things are going the way they're going? But he's saying here that God's presence will be your power in this place. And then thirdly, God's promise of a true promised land. Look at verse 14. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. As you guys realize that there is a true promised land, that God's new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven at some point, come down to earth, make all things new and turn the world into the new promised land. And that's in Revelation 21 and 22. You can read about it. There's a promise of a plan, his presence, and in a promised land. And all these promises are yours. And they're all yours in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus, we have all these promises. We, we've received these promises because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what's really cool, guys, is that Jesus is the perfect servant exile. If you think about all these instructions in Jeremiah 29, Jesus fits them all perfectly. Jesus was exiled, was willingly exiled from heaven. He was exiled from heaven not because of his sin, but ours. 
that he willingly allowed himself to be exiled to this place. So he, he knew he was sent. Secondly, Jesus really made his home here. <laughs> he didn't come in for a quick mission and fly out, right? 30 of his years were normal life. Work, family, neighborhood, synagogue, repeat, right? 30 years of his life, at least, right? He really made his home here for us. And through his teachings, Jesus made, discipled, and sent children of God, right? Through his teaching, he made, discipled, and sent children of God. And Jesus gave himself for the welfare of the city, that he served and he prayed for the city. Remember Jesus, you know, he's coming into Jerusalem, the city that had been taken over by evil, and, and he, he wept over the city, right? He wept over it as he saw it. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers your chicks, but you were not willing. And Jesus didn't try to escape from the pain of exile. When we think about don't try to escape, he didn't try to escape. He went right where the greatest need was, straight to the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the full penalty of your sin to give you the full peace, the full shalom of knowing and dwelling with God forever. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pray that you would help us. Lord, I, I don't know all the different emotions that are here about the place in which these people have been sent to minister, neighborhood, family, school, work. Lord, but I, I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, strengthen us in it. Give us endurance, Lord, whether we have 70 years or more or less. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us the endurance to do it, that we would trust fully in your strength and your power and your plan for having us here. We thank you for Jesus Christ who did the ultimate exile mission for us. We thank you even that he was banished outside the city of Jerusalem for our sins. That he hung on the cross for us because we were full-blown citizens of Babylon. That we lived in sin and we wanted to and we enjoyed it and we knew we were wrong. And yet you sent your son Jesus to take our place on that cross. Jesus, we thank you for being willing that you came into exile willingly and you did it for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to cause us to believe these beautiful things. You've shown us the beauty of Jesus and caused us to desire him above all things. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great message, right? What a great call to, to live, for, for us to live in Babylon. Oh, man, just so many, you know, so many ways to apply that, even thinking through this week. I love that passage, or, or I love that verse, verse 13, where it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Just that idea that the presence of God is with us as we go, even though we are living here in, in Babylon. And, and part of celebrating communion is celebrating the presence of Christ, not, not in a physical way, but remembering his um, shed blood and, and uh, his broken body on our behalf. And the last few weeks in communion, we've been talking about the different names that the New Testament gives to what we're about to do. And this week, I just want to highlight the name breaking of bread. Um, so the breaking of bread is a term that's used over and over again in the New Testament in Acts, right at the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. 
And then we see a little bit later in Acts as uh, Christian worship moves to Sunday morning. Um, the early church broke bread together. Acts 20 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart that day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So very long sermon in that one of those first church meetings. Um, and then later on, Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup that we bless is it not a participation? Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And I think my, my favorite term of this breaking of bread um, in the New Testament is on the road to Emmaus. He's talking with these disciples who initially don't recognize Jesus, and he's walking with them, and he explains to them everything that's happened from Scripture, and then eventually they realize, whoa, you know, that was Jesus. And they said to each other, this is Luke 24, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scripture? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered uh, with them together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And that's what we're going to do. As the bread was broken on that road on that day, the reality of Jesus was made known to those disciples. Their hearts burned within them. I and mean, if you're feeling just even a bit of that, you know, that's, that's what we're, we're going to do right now as we take communion. Would you mind standing with me as we do this? In communion, we remember the, the body that was broken because of our sin, and we remember the blood that was spilled to forgive us of those sins. And if you're trusting today in the sacrifice of Jesus to cover your sin, we invite you to take the bread in the cup with us. Parents, And we trust that you've talked about this with your kids, and they know and understand what this means as we're taking communion together. And in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells that church, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, he uh, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Father, as we uh, just remember the broken body and the shed blood, of your son on our behalf, Lord. We're so thankful that you have not only saved us for yourself, but we're so thankful that you've left us here. And as much of a, a confusing time as it is, um, trying to figure out how to live in Babylon, you've not even left us confused, Lord. You've left us with a plan. You've left us with a plan to prosper us and and uh, the city that you've left us in, Lord. And I just pray that you would be showing us the way that we can love our, love our Babylon um, that we're in. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.